0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. This comes from a liturgy for feasting with friends from every moment holy. Some of you know this book. We're going to be using this liturgy kind of throughout as a way of just engaging what I'm talking about. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't love to be invited into a liturgy that I hadn't read first, so I just want to assure you that I think this liturgy is beautiful and orthodox and trustworthy, and so as I invite you to enter into it here in a moment, you can do so with a full heart. Um, here's how I want to begin with a bit of a story. It was a cool December evening in 2012, And I sat in a dim living room in Kailua, Hawaii, with my wife, Jenny, and several friends. And it was one of the most beautiful experiences I had in a year full of of tropical beauty. Of course, there was the the white sand beaches. There was lush green cliffs soaring into a dramatic blue sky. There was the jeweled turquoise of the ocean water. And yet there I was inside this little living room. I was experiencing something even more beautiful than all of that. What was it? It It was a Christmas feast. The roasted lamb with cranberry mint glaze was remarkably good alongside the spiced Moroccan soup. The wine was plenteous. The candlelit living room was turned into a banquet hall and a sort of makeshift table made by, by you know, card tables. That's what they are, right? Set up with a, with a white tablecloth spread from end to end in this living room. There was candlelight, there was food, the music was weaving in and out of the laughter of friends. Observing beauty is good, but, but in a feast, we, we enter into it. We revel in it, we play in it like a, like a child plays in a fountain. So I want with you to come with me in your imaginations to this feast we've just read about, this feast in John 21. As we enter into this scene of Jesus hosting his disciples for breakfast on the shore, I'm going to weave in some of this liturgy from every moment holy. And so borrowing language from, from that liturgy, we're going to explore first of three things. The first thing is, This feast, this breakfast on the shore, is a hammer blow against the brittle night. A hammer blow against the brittle night. Students of John's gospel know that light and darkness in the gospel of John are not merely physical realities. They are pregnant with meaning, with spiritual significance. And so notice how this story begins in darkness. Seven disciples in the dark. They're laboring in vain all night long to catch fish, zero fish. Why seven disciples and not eight? It could be that since seven is the biblical number for completeness, we're meant to see here that this is all of us. This is all disciples of Jesus, toiling, fruitless in a long, dark night. Certainly, we can, we can relate to some degree. This is the way of things, always has been since Genesis, when humanity rejected God's rule. What do we read in Genesis three seventeen? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, through toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. Don't we know this? Fishing all night, catching nothing, being pushed to the max at our jobs and feeling like it's toilsome and fruitless sometimes. Life is going to be toilsome, we're told. Nothing is going to come easy. It will be thorns they will cut you. There will be droughts that starve you. And so it's been a long, toilsome, dark night. And if we press into the symbolism a bit more, which John often does invite us to do, the disciples are on an unsteady sea. Now, perhaps not for the seaworthy fishermen, but for Israel in general, the sea represented what? Chaos and fear and death. John hints at this when his, his picture of new creation in Revelation 21, at the heart of it is that the sea was no more. Thank goodness, the symbol of chaos and fear and death is gone, the sea is gone. And so here we have this trinity of trouble in this scene if we look into the symbolism. Unsteady and chaotic seas of life fruitless toil of long and weary labor no fish and there's a long dark night and this is our lived experience in a fallen world often look at the darkness sometimes we experience it deeply within ourselves do we not when something emerges in our hearts again and, and we find out it's there or we're nursing some secret we, we experience it out there in the world sometimes it touches us and hurts us sometimes it's hiding just below the surface of things as a pastor, and my wife is a counselor, sometimes we get little insights into this. Wow, what's going on below the surface can be really, really dark. Look at the, the weariness and toil of the world. There's a Japanese word, karoshi, which is loosely, loosely translated overwork death. It was first observed in Japanese men who dropped dead on the job after grueling hours. Incredible stress. And then soon, sociologists began studying a related trend, employees hanging themselves or throwing themselves out of windows due to overwork stress. A recent study of the World Health Organization found that in 2016, three quarters of a million people died from stroke or heart disease related to overwork. Now listen to this, the World Health Organization defines overwork at 55 hours a week. So how are you doing on that? And the attendant physical and emotional stress of sleep deprivation and social isolation, where the world is weary and toilsome. Look at the unsteadiness and chaos around us. These supercomputers in our pockets just chirping constantly with a daily offering of mass shootings and war crimes and political madness. There's chaos everywhere. And it's against this backdrop of an unsteady, dark, chaotic world. We read in verse 4 that Jesus comes just as day was breaking. Jesus stood on the shore. Just as day was breaking. This is intentional. Notice how the resurrected Jesus' arrival begins answering this trinity of trouble. He arrives on the wings of the dawning morning light. And in John's gospel in particular, again and again and again, Jesus is the light. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We hear it from Jesus' own lips in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does this mean? The first words of creation in Genesis are, let there be. And so from the very beginning, God spoke light into being. He saw the light was good. He separated the light and the darkness And The light became associated with good, with God himself, and darkness, by contrast, as the opposite, works of darkness and evil, alienation from God. So consider the creature Gollum's riddle to Bilbo. Some of you already know the answer, but if you don't, let's see if you can get it. It cannot be seen, it cannot be felt, it cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies beneath, behind stars and under hills, and empty holes it fills, it comes out first and follows after ends life kills laughter what is it darkness it had ended gollum's life it had killed his laughter there was a man named robert who said that the worst part of being homeless living in the flood tunnels beneath las vegas was the feeling of being lost without any light he says i had i had no watch i had no sense of time without the lights sometimes i would wake up somewhere and not know where i was Everything was unpredictable and random. Suddenly a gang appeared and attacked me and left me for dead. No idea who they were or why they were or where they came from or where they went. Everything was unraveling, compounded by the drugs. There was no reason, no clues. Everything was lost in the darkness of oblivion. How did I get here, he he asks himself. How did I become like a rat living underground? And he answers. He says, I too set." in front of the Christmas tree as a child, and I unwrapped Christmas presents. But my start was very difficult. My father was an alcoholic. He beat my mother, and he died early. I went to prison at 17, and the descent began. It was slow. He says, you don't notice it, because you get used to each lower level, and eventually I ended up in the darkness below Las Vegas, in the tunnels. Now, this is obviously an extreme example that illustrates the trajectory of sin and darkness. A, a hurting human, a hurting man, turns to alcohol, maybe a little bit at first, and then a little more, a little more to escape, becomes abusive, breaks a home, breaks a child, breaks their heart and their mind, darkness, which begets darkness. But today, Robert is out of the tunnels. He leads an outreach to the tunnel dwellers called Shine a Light, and they go into the tunnels and bring light. The dawning light of Christ is the power of life itself. Without his light, there's darkness. We're lost in a fog of oblivion. We don't know what's up and what's down. His light to our souls is what the sun is to the, to the budding leaves on the trees that are beginning to unfurl in the spring around us. It's the heat and the warmth that we need, not just to live, not just to survive, but to flourish. The light of Christ This is what the resurrected presence of Christ brought to these disciples for this breakfast on the shore. What he still brings to our souls when we feast on him, a hammer blow against the brittle night. So let's pause here for a moment and enter into this liturgy. It's from, again, every moment holy, mindful that in several minutes we are going to come to the table of Jesus and we are going to be resurrected by, we're going to meet and encounter the resurrected Christ in his light and life. So I invite you to join in. Most of you know how it goes. Your part is in bold. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the Prince of Darkness that would blind this world to hope. May this strike at the root of the lie, and May this our feast fall like a great hammer blow against the brittle night shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision. On the kingdom of that is to come. On the kingdom that is promised. On the kingdom that is already indeed amongst. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. It's a hammer blow against the brittle night. Second, this breakfast on the shore is a it's a foretaste of the feast, the the, the feast, I should say. Remember how the, the setting and the symbolism presents this trinity of trouble, I said. There's the long dark night, there's the fruitless toil, weary labor, and then there's the, the unsteady seas. Well, having come as the light of life and brought the light of the morning with him, what does Jesus do next? He instructs them to act. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And his words lead them to this sudden abundant fruitfulness. Nearly net-busting, 153 fish. John recognizes it's Jesus, and then Peter, being Peter, abandons reason. He throws himself into the water, and he swims 100 yards to shore. And they arrive to see that Jesus has prepared for them a a warm breakfast. Roasted fish over a charcoal fire and bread. And do you see what's happening? At this breakfast, on the shore, with the resurrected Jesus, they go from darkness to light. They go from fruitlessness to abundance. They go from unsteady toil on the sea and, and hunger to resting and feasting on the steady shore, this is a foretaste of eternal life. A life saturated in creative life and light and fruitfulness and abundance, steadiness, restfulness. It's a feast. That's how the Bible ends. Did you know that? That's an ending I can get behind, a feast, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, which we heard read about this morning. It's not an endless church service. Well, at least not the kind of church service you might expect. It's a feast. It's physical. It's We're hungry, all of us. <laughs> it's roasted lamb with mint cranberry glaze and spiced Moroccan soup. It's plenteous wine. It's, it's roasted fish and warm bread and, and real laughter from real resurrected bodies. And this is why I believe that the great Christmas feast of 2012 that I talked about Put me in touch with this goodness and this beauty beyond even the landscape of Hawaii because that's what we're destined for a feast of abundance with friends and laughter and music and delicious food and, yes, beauty all around us. You know, in feasting, we don't just see beauty, we, we enter into it, we play in it like a child plays in a fountain. We receive the gift of divine love made food, says one theologian. That's what we do here every week. God's gift of the world made food for us, given to us, that we might give it back to him in gratitude. That's what it means to be human, to be an angled mirror, says N.T. Wright, reflecting the glory of God to the world and the glory of the world back to God. And that's what happens every time we take this feast. So as we move closer to our own feast here with the resurrected Jesus, let's continue now with, with this liturgy from every moment holy. May this feast be an echo of that great supper of the Lamb, where two or more of us are gathered, O Lord, there you have promised to be, and here we are. And so here you are. Take joy, O King, in this our feast. Take joy, o King. All will be well. all good things will be restored. Peace and be reminded. So this breakfast shore, it's a hammer blow. This breakfast on the shore, it's a hammer blow against the brittle night. It's a foretaste of the feast. And finally, it's a reminder of the abiding hospitality of Jesus, our host. So look what happens around this table, around this charcoal fire, I should say of Jesus. The darkness scatters, the toil ends, rest begins, hunger is satiated with bread and fish, and what is more, there's restoration. John 21 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Three times Jesus presses, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes, Lord. Three times Jesus commissions him, feed and tend my sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What's going on here? If you go back to the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus gives the disciples an ominous warning about what's to come. But Peter, being Peter, poor guy, puffs out his chest in pride and he proudly declares for everyone around to hear Matthew 26, 33, Jesus, even if I fall away on account of you, excuse me, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered him, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And hours later, Around a charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard, Peter stood warming himself. And as the high priest questioned Jesus, I wonder if Jesus had one eye and one ear turned across the courtyard towards Peter, hearing him insist three times, I do not know him. I am not his follower. And we read even he called down curses. Curse him. I have nothing to do with him. Three times. Jesus meets the eye of his friend, his follower, this man who promised so proudly never to deny him, to die for him. The rooster crows, and then Peter flees, weeping bitterly along the way. And so, as Jesus prepared this charcoal fire, the only other one that we read about in the Gospels, he knew what he was doing. He knew that smell is powerfully connected to memory. He knew that the very scent of the coals would kindle the flame of shame in Peter's heart. But like a good counselor, he gently opens the wound so that he can address the wound and cleanse the wound, not harm it, but to heal it. Preparing the charcoal fire, bringing up the shame in Peter, he asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three denials, three invitations to love. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three votes of confidence in Peter. I still love you, Peter. I still trust you. I still believe in you. I still have a purpose for you. The gospel erases shame. I began with a reminder of God's abiding love for you when we sang this morning, my sins there are many, his mercy is more. We all come every Sunday to church with things that throughout the week we're not real proud of. Postures of our heart, things we said or did, laziness, temper, greed, whatever it is. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep feed my sheep. I still love you, Peter. I still trust you, friends. Your sins are many, but my mercy, it's, it's more. And I still have a purpose for you. And so here are the marks of the hospitality of Jesus, our host. When we gather around his table, darkness scatters, toil ends, rest begins, hunger is filled. And friends, there is forgiveness. There's grace, there's restoration that obliterates shame. And so the table of the Lord to which we now turn is this place where every follower of Christ, though we are temporally removed from this breakfast on the shore, from this first Easter, the church calls these sacraments sure and certain means of grace because Christ is surely and certainly present to us in them. So we're temporally removed from him, but yet we can feast with him this morning and every week. We can be with our risen Lord. So let's end again with the liturgy from every moment holy. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears, will not have the final word. Take joy, little flock. Take joy. Let battle be joined. Let battle be joined. Now, you who are loved by the Father. Prepare your hearts and give yourselves wholly to this celebration of joy, to the glad company of saints, to the comforting fellowship of the Spirit, and to the abiding presence of Christ, who is seated among us as both our host and our honored guest, and as our King. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, feast and take delight. Lord, would you help us truly to enter into this feast that you have prepared for us this morning? And as we do, as we experience your your light and your life, your steadiness, your rest, your abundance, and most of all, your grace and your restoration, would you help us also to prepare tables in our own homes and invite our friends and neighbors to them that reflect your love and your rest and your abundance and your restoration. Make us a hospitable people as you are hospitable to us. Thank you, Father, most of all for your grace, that our sins are many, your mercy is more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.